Our topic this week is out of the last two chapters of the book of Esther, Esther chapter 9 and Esther chapter 10. So chapter 10 only has a few verses in it, so I wanted to split it up, but there's no way. <laughs> so anyway, so we'll do those two chapters together. In, this, in these chapters, Purim is instituted. So starting in verse 1, in the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. And so God waited till the, the last minute. Here we are at the very last. This was the day that was picked out when Haman took the lots and cast the lots. And, and the date was determined for the twelfth month, almost eleven months after the time that he cast the lot. So I guess if God gave us as much time as possible and still keeping it within that year. And, uh, and then he lets it run out all the way to this time. Uh, even after Haman is killed and then two months, and that took about uh, a week from when Haman wrote the decree, the death decree, uh, between Esther, uh, Mordecai hearing about the decree, seeing the sign, and weeping and uh, sackcloth and ashes and then however long it took for Esther to realize that he was in that condition and then the back and forth between Mordecai and, and Esther's servants to get the message to Esther and the back and forth that took place there and, and then Esther finally getting to the point where she's willing to surrender and say I'll go to the, before the king and even if I perish, I perish and then calls for three days of fasting and so another three days added on there, and, and then the two days of banqueting, and then the plot is revealed to the king, and Haman is executed. So however long that took, from the time Haman writes a decree, so a week or give or take, uh, till, uh, till Haman is executed. And then another two months or so go by, before the king exalts Mordecai, and gives him Haman's ring and gives him Haman's position. And Esther and Mordecai are able to petition the king. Well, hey, this death decree is still out there. Time is ticking. And, and then uh, the king allows Mordecai to write whatever he wants to, to counter it. And so then the message has to go to the entire kingdom, 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. It's a huge area. In the book of Ezra, we read that it took Ezra four months to go from from uh, Babylon to uh, wherever he was, I don't know, Shushan or Babylon, where he was, to from in the Persia to to Jerusalem, and the outermost part of the Persian kingdom was even beyond that, beyond Egypt, onto Ethiopia, and so it would be even longer. Now the carriers were on horses. I don't know how Ezra traveled, but no doubt it took a long time to get the message to every village and to get it out there. And so time was ticking along with that message getting out there. So they only had a few months between the Jews getting the message that they could defend themselves and the time of the death decree. And it's interesting that Mordecai picked the time for the defense to be on that same day. Not earlier, not before, but on that same day, that last day at the very end. And this book is a historical book, but it's also a prophetic book. And we've been seeing that all along. Not a prophetic, perfect historical, uh, prophetic book, because again, it really was a real story. And so there were parts that fit in. At times Esther is, is like Yeshua, at times Mordecai is like Yeshua, at times King is like uh, the Lord God, King of the universe, sometimes he's not, and, uh, and, and, and the storyline for last day events. 
And so we'll see that here as we come to the very end, the very end plot, the very last day, the day it says, the 12th month, the 13th day, when the time is to go forth for the killing, the wiping out of all the Jewish people. I mean, this would have been it. No promise of Messiah. It would have been over. Every single Jew, no doubt, lived within that 127 provinces. That was a huge territory covering everything, especially since it covered Israel and Jerusalem and the places where all of Israel and Judah were dispersed into. And so it would have wiped us all out. So the very day, the last day, again, symbolic of the last day, God doesn't step into the last moment. It'll come right to the very end with a death decree at the door. As is prophesied in the Bible, they will seek to kill, thinking they are doing God's service. Yeshua himself said that. They'll kick us out of congregations and seek to kill us. So right till the very end. The devil will go around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Not many people survive getting devoured by a lion, right? You know, so that means the end. That means death. That means the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her offspring. War means killing those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua, Revelation 12, 17. And so right to the very end, as we're seeing in this, in this book of Esther, the death decree going right to the very end, God will take it right to the very end when he steps in. And so they're ready to overpower us. And then the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. Now, in contrast to being, again, a perfect prophetic analogy, in these last days, God will not let, use us to defend ourselves and to fight against our enemies. God will step in. It'll be more like the Passover Exodus, where God brings us to the Red Sea. Again, the last moment, the last day, after 10 plagues, brings us to where there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to hide. There's no more time on the clock. The Egyptians are there. Uh, God has to put a, a fire, a pillar of fire between us and them, because there's, again, there's no more time left. There's no more place to go. The very back against the sea. Mountains on either side. And then it is God who parts the Red Sea, God who brings us through. And the ancient Egyptians continued their pursuit, showing their heart, showing their desire, not even willing to see a miracle of God right before their eyes, after 10 plagues and everything else. And they continue to charge on, and the God closes the water in on them and destroys them. And so also that's how it will be. But again, similar to Esther, it will be at the last moment when God's deliverance comes. This time it won't be through our hands as it was in Esther time, but again, like I say, more like uh, the, the Exodus experience. Verse 2, the Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps and the governors and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. And so again, in contrast to a perfect prophetic, I don't think the kings of the earth, the Bible tells us the kings of the earth are going to unite with the merchants of the earth and with the religious 
coexist of the earth to persecute the remnant, God's people, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua. And so here, the king was on their side because Esther was on their side and Mordecai was on their side and the governors and the satraps were on their side and thus fear fell upon many people and they then came to the faith. But in the spiritual aspect, God is on our side and he is the king of kings and angels are on our side and the Holy Spirit is on our side and he will send forth his spirit and he will stir up the fear of people and while there will be people who are professing to follow the Lord today who will fall away when the persecutions come, history will repeat itself. We see that over and over again. But then at the same time, people will come to the faith and stand for the faith when they see people of courage standing. Like a Mordecai standing for truth, like a Daniel standing for truth, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah standing for truth, people will be drawn to that and come and take a stand because they see that God is with us, that the angels are with us, and there will be those that come and join God's ranks. But as Yeshua again prophesied, there will be many in that day who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? Right? But there'll be a falling away, as it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There'll be a falling away first. And then the anti-Messiah will be revealed before the coming of the Lord. So falling away will take place. But there'll be lots of revival. There'll be false revivals. There'll be lots saying, Lord, Lord. There'll be a lot of people saying, this is it, hallelujah, we brought in everlasting peace. So there'll be a contrast. There'll be two, two groups. All the world will worship the beast. Worship, it's a religious term. We're not talking atheist takeover. The Bible's predicting a worship takeover. Worship over the world. And so you have those that are worshiping the beast and those who are worshiping the Lord. And again, historically, over and over again, time repeating itself, those who are worshiping the Lord are in the minority. The eight on Noah's Ark. Right? The few that come out. But as with the Exodus experience, there will be a mixed multitude that come with God's people. But there will also be a falling away at the same time. And so that fear will come upon them and many will join themselves and to the Lord's people because of the fear of Mordecai and Mordecai here again symbolizing Yeshua, the fear of Mordecai, fear of the Lord coming upon them and they will join God's ranks. Mordecai was great in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with the slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And again, Mordecai here representing Yeshua, being exalted and raised up, and God stepping in and slaughtering and destroying. Right? Like the sheep and the goats, the wheats and the tares, God comes in and slaughters, destroys with the smoke of his sword, the sword of his mouth. The Lord comes with the brightness of his coming and destroys the enemy. As in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. As in the days of Lot, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. He comes and destroys his enemies. 
Verse 6, in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. That's just in the capital there, where Esther was. 500 on that day. So that means 500 people, even though the king was on their side, Mordecai was on their side, Esther was on their side for, at this point, 11 months, that it was known there in the capital. It took a while to reach the outer districts, but certainly right there in the capital, they knew now that Esther was Jewish. They saw what happened to Haman. They saw that the house of Haman was given to Mordecai and Esther. And yet still 500 people still wanted to try and kill the Jews right underneath the king's nose in the capital. That's pretty amazing. And the Jews had to defend themselves and kill 500. And one of the reasons God allows it to go all the way to the end, one of the reasons I think Mordecai didn't make the date for a month before or whatever, he stood back and that way we were defensive and not on the offensive. Right? Instead of us going and attacking all those that we think are our enemy, Mordecai put it on the very day when they were allowed to attack us and plunder us, and then we knew who was, still obstinate, still in unbelief, still with hatred in their hearts. God exposed their true hearts, and thus as they came, we were able to defend ourselves, and 500 right in the capital were killed on that day. And God's doing that now. He's exposing hearts. He's exposing motives. He's exposing who has faith and who, has, who doesn't. Also, the ten sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. That's very interesting. Because in Mordecai's decree, just as in Haman's decree, Haman's decree said kill all the Jews and you get all their plunder. So that was a good incentive for them to kill the Jews. But in, in Mordecai's decree, it said the same. We can defend ourselves and anyone who tries to attack us, we can fight back and kill them and then take their plunder. But even though the decree allowed it, with the king's ring, they didn't take any of their plunder. Ten sons of Haman. And on that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel. And the ten sons of Haman, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. And so here again, we have symbolism of the Heavenly Father and Yeshua as Esther. Esther is Yeshua coming before. And what is your request? And in petitioning, as Yeshua is our representative, representing people here on this earth. And Esther requests, says, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to, to today's decree and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So that's kind of interesting. So she says, let's do it again. Let's, let's do it another day and see if there's anyone else who still wants to destroy us. And also to hang Haman's ten sons on the gallows. Now, at this point where she's saying this, what condition are Haman's sons in? What condition are they in? They're dead, right. They're already dead, and she wants them hanged. She wants them killed twice. And for two events to take place in Shushan. And that's interesting, because again, prophetically, the wicked will experience two deaths. 
all the wicked who have ever lived from Cain on down to the very last will die a physical death. They will be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. Those that are alive till he comes. So they'll experience the first death, the physical death. Then later on, and that's a whole other topic and we've done sermons on that, uh, on the whole thousand years and what takes place there. And if you want to see that, go to shalomadventure.com and in our own personal search on the Shalom Adventure page at the top, just type in millennium and a sermon on that will, will pop up for you. So then after a time period, there will be a time that the wicked will be raised again in a second resurrection to experience what Revelation refers to as the second death. In order to experience a second death, what did they have to first experience? A first death, right, exactly. And so they experience the first death, they already have died or they'll die at the coming of the Lord. And then again, they'll be raised in a final judgment. So there's actually two judgments that take place. One, they were able to be judged on this earth. As Sodom and Gomorrah were judged and God will judge and they'll decide who decide, that dies when he comes, who he takes with him and who he destroys. Again, the sheep and the goat, the wheat and the tares, various analogies like that. And so he destroys them that first death. And later on, they are resurrected to experience their second death, to receive their final sentencing. And so here, just as Haman's 10 sons experienced, in a sense, two deaths. And so the king commanded this to be done, and the decree was issued in Shushan, that, and they hanged Haman's 10 sons. So again, the second death kind of thing, but also as an example for all to see what is done to those who oppose God's people. Now, with that, I wanted to talk about Haman's 10 sons. I wanted to show a little video here by uh, Elon Gold, a little humor here we'll put into the, to the sermon uh, with his, his, him talking about Haman's 10 sons. You know, we do have a lot of our time. That's the October environment. He's the home of our time. What I want to do is I want to send in the McGillow with a little note saying, don't you see how this story ends? Don't you get that they're just going to be the bad guy on our future holidays? That we're going to be swinging briars to your name? Making triangle cookies out of the shape of your weird ears? Yeah. 
know, I just I don't want to blow me. I don't want to have this conversation either. Like, so, uh, you guys uh, don't particularly like this month out there. So, thankfully, Haman wasn't able to kill any of us, but we still remember, we don't forget, because again, it's prophetic. Time and time, history will repeat itself. We need to never forget, not out of hatred, not out of anger, not out of revenge, but to be alert, to be aware of the times that we're living in. Especially as they're going to say, oh, peace and safety, unity, unity, unity. We're hearing so much unity, unity, unity nowadays. Political speakers, unity, unity, unity. A lot of, a lot of religious leaders that passed by a congregation the other day and on their marquee, let's pray for unity. So there'll be a revival, there'll be a unity, a conformity, right? And that's what communism and socialism do. You know what the difference between communism and socialism is? How you spell it. That's the only difference. That's really the only difference. Hey, but that's what they do. And all the dictatorships, all the, you know, you'll get the, uh, the, the, the Muslim-ruled countries, all these countries that are ruled by a dictator or a king, how do they bring about unity and conformity? By force. By killing everybody who doesn't agree with them. That's their motive apparatus. That's how they do it. Right? And that is, again, that's the historical. That's how it works. That's how Satan works. And that's the spirit that, that infuses all of these power-hungry groups. Again, it's not the individuals, it's not the people, it's not Haman, it's not his ten sons. It's Satan behind it all that is the power that motivates and corrupts, and then that is his end result. That's why Yeshua gave us all those warnings that he gave us. Work while it is day, for night comes when no one will be able to work. Why do he say that? Because we're not going to be able to work. Why won't we be able to work? Because they're going to shut it down. They're going to stop. They're going to censor. They're going to not allow it. It was warning after warning throughout the scriptures to be prepared, to be on alert. That flee, you're going to have to flee to the mountains. You're going to have to flee and don't go back. Pray that your flight not be in the winter or on the Sabbath day. Why are we going to have to flee? Why is he warning us to flee? Why is he telling us to be prepared to flee? If there's not going to be persecution, if there's not going to be, if it's all going to be peace and safety and happiness, there'll be an attack over and over again. We see it again historically. We see it in his writings. We see it in his and other people's writings. We attack to the end, but just like in this story, God will step in, and just like in all the other stories, God will step in at the last minute on the last day, 
as the clock is just about to tick and hit midnight, not necessarily a literal midnight, but the midnight of the day, the end of the day, the end of the year, and God will step in, cut it short in righteousness, and protect his people. Verse 15, And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay hand on their plunder. It's now a total of 800 right again in the capital. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives and had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies but they did not lay hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So in the whole kingdom, 75,000 people still in reading the decree and hearing the decree and seeing that the governors were on, their, on the Jews' side and the surtraps and the king and everybody was on their side, they still, 75,000 still, that's a huge number. I mean, it's hard for us to fathom. You know, in American terms, we, we, thankfully, fortunately, we haven't really experienced large numbers of deaths. I mean, we have to go all the way back, you know, like over 20 years, to, to, or about 20, about 20 years to 9-11 uh, to and think of 3,000 dying in one day. It's shocking and that we went to war over that. So comparison, 3,000, 75,000 people in one day still bent on killing the people of God. Even at that time with the king and the throne and the government on their side. It shows the, the depth of hatred, the depth of greed that all of us are at. Because none of us are any different than those 75,000. All of us are carnal. All of us are born under sin. All of us hate other people that are different than us. All of us are racist. If you want to deny that, you know, you can be in denial. But all of us are born as racist. All of us are born at hating other people. All of us are born prejudiced. All of us are born greedy. All of us are born self-consumed. And that's why we need the Messiah. To change us, to transform us, to forgive us, to remove that nature, to remove those characteristics, and to change us into his image, back into the original image that he had planned for us. We don't have his image. We're not, Adam and Eve were born in his image. You are not. Me neither. <laughs> we are born in Satan's image, and that's why we need to be born again. <laughs> so we can re be reborn into God's image. That's why we need the Messiah. That's why he came, to live in the flesh to die for our sins, to take our sins, to take our nature upon himself. And then in the flesh, defeat the devil and overcome sin and to demonstrate how reliance on the Father and being filled with the Holy Spirit can give us victory over all traits, all attributes that are against God, all our carnal nature, and to remove it and to take it out of our hearts and minds. Otherwise, there go I, all of us, on a hatred-bent power trip to control everyone and everything around us. That's why we need to surrender to God and receive his mercies, receive his grace, receive his love, receive his power, receive his mind, receive his heart. Let him write his laws into our hearts and minds and change us 
and transform us. And that's the power of God. That's the glory of God. It's not him winning big battles for us, and that's you know, wonderful and helpful, but it's really in a transformed life. And that's why I think he doesn't step in more often and win every single battle for us. Because his real motive is to reveal our hearts to ourselves so that we can come before him crying out in our need. Whether revealing, whether we're on the angry hatred side, or whether we're on the lack of faith side and the doubting side, whatever our need is, that we come to him in our time of need. So he allows things to play out. He will step in if, if the devil goes beyond what he has allowed. But all of his, his purpose is to draw us to him. Draw us in faith with him. And then we see that with, with Esther's story. There they were, decrees, two decrees that had already taken place, told us we can go back to Israel. We can go to the promised land. And we didn't go. We stayed comfortable in Persia. Selfish in Persia. And so God allowed the calamity to take place, woke us up. They spent time fasting, praying. No doubt fearful for the whole 11 months, never knowing really what's going to happen. And so God allows us to go through times to grow our faith, to strengthen our faith, and to test our faith. But he will see us through. And again, third time, it says they did not lay hands on their plunder. Why not? They again had the privilege to do that. Mordecai said it was in the decree, signed with the king's ring. Why didn't they, out of the 75,000, not lay hand on the plunder? And the 800 in Shushan, not lay hand on the plunder. They had every right to it, those that were attacking them. It was defensive, they had every right to, plus again the decree gave them the right to. I think this is for the sake of prophecy. In the last day, when God destroys the wicked, how much of their stuff will we get? None of it, right? Because where do we go? We go up, right? The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Messiah shall rise first. We which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And the Lord destroys with the brightness of his coming all that are on this earth. Like again, the flood, as in the days of Noah, he destroys it with a flood, he'll destroy it this next time with fire. He's going to burn it up. The earth in the entirety will be burned up. Neither root nor branch left. It will melt with fervent heat, as 2 Peter tells us. The elements will melt. The earth and the heavens will burn up. The heavens have to burn up too, because we keep on sending junk up there. All the satellite stuff and all that stuff up there. How did God know that, right? God knew that way in advance. He's got to burn up the heavens too. The stuff we left on the moon, you know, all that stuff up there. He's got to burn that up too. He's got to burn it all up to create a new heavens and a new earth. So we don't inherit any of their junk. We're not going to get their cars. We're not going to get their rust buckets. You know, we're not going to get the junk. We're not going to need it. He's going to take us in a twinkling eye. He's going to transform us and change us. And then after he creates the new heavens and new earth, the meek will inherit the entire earth. But not with their junk. We're not inheriting their junk. We're not inheriting it from them. It's not their plunder. It's what God gives us in the new earth that he creates for us. So they didn't lay hand on any of their stuff. And again, it showed that wasn't, it was defensive. We didn't do it to get their stuff. That wasn't our motive. We were just defending ourselves. 
wasn't out of revenge, it wasn't out of greed, it was just out of self-defense. Verse 19, therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holy day, a holiday, and for sending presents to one another. That's what I'm, Purim, send gifts to one another. That's the time to send gifts to friends, it's on Purim. Right? Not at Hanukkah, not in December. At the biblically dedicated time, or specified time, send gifts. Is that Purim in celebration of what God has done? Gladness and feasting and a holiday and joy. And that's why we celebrate with joy and a fun and funny uh, Purim play, the book Esther play. It's not meaning to be sacrilegious against the story, but it's to do it. We do the story seriously like we're doing right now. But once a year during the holiday, during the festival, do it in a fun way. Demonstrate our gladness and feasting in the face of a time when was a total annihilation attempt and God's deliverance took place. Verse 20, Mordecai wrote letters to all the Jews near and far who were in the provinces of the king of Asherus to establish that they should celebrate yearly as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as a month which was turned from sorrow to joy and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. And so also during Purim, we collect, if you want to bring in, uh, canned goods, non-perishable goods for us to store up through the, for the year. And then as people are in need, we're able to share it with them. And that's the time again to do that. At least one time a year where it's a good idea to do that. And so as Purim comes on, up, feel free to bring stuff in for us to be able to share and distribute or just you know, distribute it yourself. And that's fine too. Make sure the Lord gets the honor and glory and that they know that God is the giver. That the gift comes from the Lord. And so God turns our sorrow to joy and our mourning to a holiday. There's joy in the morning. Right? The sun will come up in the morning. Trust in the Lord. Look upon him. As he takes us through this dark day, as he takes us through this troubled time, keep our eyes focused on him. And know that the joy will be there. There will be a day of deliverance. Thus we can rejoice in the Lord always. And again with Paul, rejoice. Even though he was in a dungeon, even though he was facing getting his head cut off, he was able to rejoice. That's different than happiness. He was able to rejoice and be thankful, trusting in the Lord, knowing that we're just passing through this earth anyway. Nothing here really matters that much anyway. It's all just a test. Grow our faith and our loyalty to the Lord. Because he's got a mansion prepared for us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why would Yeshua say that? If he wasn't expecting that our hearts would be troubled <laughs> in the last days. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be also. Right? So it's going to take us to where he is. So we don't have to be troubled, keeping our eyes focused on the goal set before us, the new Jerusalem that he will bring us to, he will seat us in, and we will be there and we will reign with him. And also in that dual killing. So one aspect of here in the story of Esther, God allowed the Jews to defend themselves, where in the last day God will do the 
the second coming, the Lord will do the judging and, and the destruction of the wicked. But then after he destroys the wicked, and again, then before the, at the first, their first death, before their second death, God allows us to do the judging. God allows us to look at the record books. The books will be open and the dead will be judged out of the things written therein, whether good or evil. And first, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5 or 6, it says, Know ye not, can't you judge in things on earth? Know ye not that you will judge angels. Know you not that you will judge the world. He's going to place us as judges to look over those record books and to judge and decide and to see, to audit God's books, to see God open it up before us and see why Aunt Sally's not there that we thought certainly she should be there. And, and I'm sure Stephen's going to want to know, why is Saul there? How did he get here? And so God will open the books and he will reveal it all. And of course, we will agree with God, but then that's where we then kind of stepping in and agreeing and saying, yes, they made their choice. They had every opportunity. You sent the Holy Spirit. You sent people. You sent opportunities. You sent your conviction. And they chose not to be here. And thus, we will agree with God. And so in this, that sense, we are also casting our vote in their final destruction, in their second death. And again, that's more covered more fully in the Sermon on the Thousand Years on the Millennium. Verse 23, the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them because Haman, the enemy of all, of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded that this wicked plot which Haman devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. And so the plot and the plan turned on his own head. And Proverbs talks a lot about that. You dig a hole, a ditch, you're the one going to fall in it, right? So, so if we plot evil, what goes around comes around. As we intend in our hearts, so shall it be. As we judge, so we will be judged. So it comes back on their own head. Satan's plot and desires and plans to be like the Most High God, to, 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 to kill God's people, to kill God. His desire and his motive to he was hoping that he would kill Yeshua once and for all. He would tempt him, that he would give him the fall. Ends up turning on his own head. And instead of Yeshua being the one who is destroyed, Satan will be the one that is destroyed. Yeshua was raised on the third day by the power and glory of the Father. Satan will not be raised. He will be destroyed. And it returns on his own head. And every evil intent that we allow to remain in our heart will turn back on our own head. That's why everything needs to be surrendered to the Lord. That's why forgiveness is not so much for the other person's sake, although it can lead them to the Lord and lead them in repentance. It's to free us. It's to set us free from the anger, the bitterness, and the revenge. It doesn't excuse their wrong. It actually exposes their wrong, but it sets us free. It liberates us. And that's what God will do. He will turn it all. He will be the final judge. While the wicked get away with a lot of stuff here on this earth, they prosper tremendously here on this earth. 
But God will have the final say. He will bring them down. He will bring it down. He will end it. He will judge. He's in the ultimate control, but that doesn't mean he's controlling everything every day. He doesn't. If he did, then we'd say, why is so much wicked going on? David asked that. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do they? And then he looked, he says, he looked into the sanctuary. To the day of atonement, to the judgment of God. And he saw their end. And in the end, they will be judged. In the end, the wicked they had planned will be turned on their own head. Verse 26, they called these days Purim, after the name Purim. And the Jews established and posed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate. So that's again why we celebrate and why we call it Purim, because the Bible tells us to. And why we invite one another to come and, and everybody to come. Everybody can come and join us together. God brings them in. Again, the mixed multitude came out of Egypt. God invites them in. Everybody who wants to join us, welcome to come and join together in the feast of the Lord, in the in the joy of the Lord, in the, in the Lord God who, who died for the sins of the world, for all people, open intent to bring everybody in under his banner, unity under him, under faith in him, under his laws, under his ways, under his scriptures, the entire scriptures, not just a portion, but the entire scriptures, to rejoice together and to celebrate. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. What book? Not the Bible book per se, although the book, the book Esther has entered into that book. I don't think that's the book is referring to here. It's some book is referred to, but it's written and it's confirmed and it's written in the book. And I believe that's why the book of Esther doesn't mention God, doesn't mention prayer, it mentions fasting, but it doesn't mention prayer. Because it was not written so much for the Bible, it was written for some book. Some chronicle of the king, some historical book for Persia. And maybe by God's grace it'll show up someday. It was written there, and we see that then we go into chapter 10, and the very first verse, King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and the islands of the sea. What does that have to do with Esther? What does that have to do with the Purim? It doesn't have anything to do with it. That's just the next part in the book of the, whatever book this was placed in. Which is there, again, talking about the king. And so, okay, now we got peace. Haman's gone. Everything's all right. The wicked are gone. So now we got a tax. Let's raise taxes, right? That's a good government thing to do. You don't know what else to do. Let's just raise the taxes. <laughs> on the land and on the sea, everywhere. We're just going to raise the taxes. And so that's what the king does. Now, in this aspect, he's not foreshadowing the Messiah or, or God or the Heavenly Father. He's just being King Ahasuerus. He's just being king. And then the last verses of the book of Esther... All the acts of the, and his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced them, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of the Media, Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to the king Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of the, his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. And that's where the book ends. So chapter 10 and just three verses. And it just... In this book of the Chronicles of the Kings. And so this is where it was placed. And thankfully it was also copied and placed in the Bible for us to know and understand as well. And so that concludes our study of the book of Esther. 
and takes us through to the time of Purim and God's power and God's grace. And so as we think on these things in this chapter, in the day that we're living in, this book foreshadowing, the trials and the struggles and the death decree that will be imposed, that Satan will go and oppose on all those who refuse to worship the beast, won't be able to buy or sell and to kill all those that do not worship the beast. So it's going to be a troublesome time. Now is the time to work. Now we fortunately still have a little bit of daylight left. But night is coming. It's going to get very dark. Very, very dark. And I don't want to scare anyone because God will see us through. But we need to know. Be more scareful not, scary not to know. And not know a hurricane's coming and not be prepared. We need to be prepared. Night is coming. So we need to work now. We need to get the message out now. We need to warn the world now. We need to prepare people now. We need to be prepared and get prepared and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Have our hearts cleansed. Let the Lord convict us and show us our motives in our heart so that the Messiah can cleanse us through his blood and that we can receive his spirit and be changed and then filled with his spirit to the point of overflowing so that we share it with others and so we can warn others so that we can pull them out of Babylon we can pull them out of the confusion that we can warn them and they can be prepared as well. That the message can go forward. Mordecai didn't write the decree just for Shushan. He wrote the decree and had it sent all throughout the provinces. We need to get the message out to all the provinces. We need to warn the world. Warn our neighbors, warn our friends, warn our loved ones, family members. We need to get the message out now. We don't have much time left. We see things are closing up very rapidly very, very rapidly. We're not going to have his opportunities to do so as we've had enjoyed for the past. And we've been asleep as a result. And it's time to wake up and to get others ready and woken up. And so in a moment when we pray, if you've never surrendered your heart to the Lord, if your life is not right with him, if on judgment day you would not be found right with him, if there's any sin still on your record, in a moment we pray, surrender it all to him. Let him convict you, let him show you, let him reveal, let him search you, your heart and mind, and surrender all to him. Be filled with his spirit, be transformed into his likeness, and I'm going to bring your life in harmony with his word. Secondly, if there is fear on your heart and mind over the last days and things that will come to pass, and surrender that to the Lord. We don't have to be afraid. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. Those who endure to the end. Again, you don't have to endure unless there's trouble, right? So those who endure to the end, he will give us the endurance. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. You don't have to overcome during difficult, uh, easy times. We overcome during difficult times. He will give us the ability to overcome through his blood and through the word of our testimony. And so, surrender all the fear to the Lord. Let him give you his power. Let him give you his sound mind. Let him give you his love. And receive his love. Third, if God's placing on your heart and mind a burden for someone to share God's word with, bringing someone to mind that you know that doesn't know the Lord, and you want to ask God to go before you, to prepare their heart, Soften them, to make them open and receptive, to prepare the timing of when you share. In a moment when we pray, surrender them to the Lord and let God use you and fill you and open up the way.
Fourth, if we don't care about others, if we aren't sharing with others, if we have no interest in others, it really just reveals our heart. Because every true believer who comes to the Lord is filled with the Holy Spirit and cannot hold it in. Want to share it with others. Want to tell others. And so that just reveals our heart. If we're not sharing with others and have no burden for others, we just want to listen and hear and hear and hear and hear, and surrender that to the Lord. Confess selfishness and lack of burden and lack of transformation or that area is not transformed. And let him do that now. Let him change that and fill you with his spirit to overflowing. So it flows over to other people. Gives you a heart and a burden for the lost. That's God's heart. God has a burden for the lost. He left heaven to come to this earth because he loves the lost. And when we have his heart, we will have that same love. And so if that applies to you in a moment when we pray, let God do that. Fifth, if like in the story, God has just taken you through something in your life, some trouble in your life, some struggle in your life, and you want to rejoice and praise the Lord because he's done something in your life. He's seen you through some difficulty, some unknown, some area of faith, some answer to prayer. In a moment when we pray, use this opportunity, use this time to just give him thanks. Don't forget to thank him. It's wonderful, they did that deliverance, and then the next day they were praising the Lord and thanking the Lord and celebrating. Too often God does something and we forget. We prayed and prayed and prayed and asked other people to pray, and then it happens, so like, oh, okay, good. You know, it just kind of went out with a fizzle. And then we go on to the next thing. We forget. Don't forget. Praise the Lord. Celebrate with the Lord. Write it down. Put it in a book somewhere. On this day, God did this. Record it and remember it. And give thanks to the Lord. So if any of those areas apply to you, or maybe some other area God's been speaking to your heart and mind about as we recounted this story, let God do his work. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we praise your name and we do thank you for your word and we're thankful for this example in the book of Esther of your deliverance coming forth. And Lord, I pray you give us the endurance to, to be patient and have the patience of the saints, patient endurance on the part of the saints. Give us the patience to wait and to wait and wait for your deliverance and to work and to share and to witness for you, to be prepared and get prepared more and more. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us to overflowing. Give us that extra oil to see us to the end. Wake us up. Forgive us and cleanse us through the blood of Messiah. Wash us clean and save us and use us and sharing your salvation with others. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.